Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And it's time for a shout out. Thank you, Kathleen, for joining us over at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. We hope that you enjoy the piles of bonus episodes awaiting you there. Yeah, dive on into those like Scrooge McDuck into his heaps of gold coins. Which I never understood because physics, and that would really hurt, but I guess it's cartoon rules. Anyway, our patrons are the reason we are able to offer the Pass the Mic grant, which offers some financial support for undergrad and graduate students traveling to present their research at conferences. We've got a few days left, listeners. Yes. Like, yes, like the, two. the first deadline's <laughs> coming up. So head to thedirtpod.com slash pass the mic. So that's all one word, and mic is spelled M-I-C, for all the info Any student within the four fields of anthropology is eligible to apply, but also please keep in mind that things like international travel and visa costs may affect how helpful we can be. We're hoping to grow this grant so we can provide more support to more people, and you can help to do that if you have the means. Yeah. Um, So there are lots of ways to contribute to this initiative and to the dirt in general. So here is a list of those things. Um, And the list will also be in the show notes. Note to me put them in the show notes yeah and Um, also you know you don't have to write these down yeah (laughs) so you can donate directly um so we are on paypal um you can send us a few bucks over at paypal.me slash the dirt podcast um you can sponsor an episode as some folks have done Mm -hmm. um and so all of the these proceeds go right to pass the mic previously um sponsored episodes like that fund just kind of got rolled into what like what our, our general operating general budget offset of costs. Now they are heretofore dedicated. Um, they're, yeah, they're earmarked for the for the grant. Um, mm-hmm. So for a minimum donation of twenty five dollars, uh, you can request a topic that you'd like to learn more about. Um, so we do reserve the right to veto 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 or offer alternatives Uh, but we also love when folks sponsor episodes because it's usually things we wouldn't think of on our own Um, and we learn so much we do and keep in mind that um, as you request sponsored episodes they go into a production calendar that has already been partially filled up with other things so you may not hear your episode right away but if you have sponsored an episode it is coming don't worry uh, so number three on that list, you can join any of our membership tiers at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast for an array of bonus items, including a monthly newsletter with upcoming episode topics and bonus episodes at varying levels of spiciness. And number four, you can purchase merch from our store. And that helps us financially. Yes, but also wearing your cool, cool merch around gets us out there, especially the one out that has our wild. name on it. 
Especially the ones not, that have our name on it. Not yeah. all of our merch has our name on it. I know. Some of it's just like, if you know, you know. Uh, but you can head to thedirtpod.com, click the Dirt Shirts link at the top of the page, and get yourself some stickers, buttons, magnets, shirts, mugs, water bottles, hoodies, all of the above. I'm the one who designs all of our merch, and I'm particularly proud of the most recent one, which says, I heart context. It's cute. Okay, that's it. Thank you again to all our patrons. Let's do the episode. Yeah. So um, I'm glad you're back, Anna, because I've wanted to talk Me to you too. about this. Um, so this week, um, after Sick Sickly here. I got the long COVIDs. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but this week we are heading back to the Arabian Peninsula uh, to learn about the ancient kingdom of Himyar in what is today Yemen. Um, so Anna, yep. Pop quiz. Uh huh. What do you know about Himyar, and what do you know about ancient Yemen in general? Ancient Yemen in general, very little. Oh, so close but, to nothing. But Himyar, you know a lot. About. Well, because because you mentioned. Well, I know <laughs> now after writing this script. But no, because you had mentioned something. I don't know weeks ago about a Jewish monarchy in Yemen. And that you wanted to talk about it. So like in you, you introduced me to the idea. Okay. So, so I knew that I knew there was something interesting going on with Judaism. That's it. That's all I got. Okay. So mm-hmm. Jews. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> they yep. were there. Um, yep. Indeed. Indeed they were. Um, m- not many now. Most nope. left. So we're going to start with the geography of Yemen to get everybody familiar. And then get into what Hemyar's neighbors had to say about the kingdom during its time. So if you remember the slumped over cardboard box analogy that I provided mm-hmm. the first time I introduced listeners to the Arabian Peninsula. You know, um, the more I thought about it, maybe like an axe blade looks a little like an axe blade. Okay, so do you think people are more likely to know what an axe blade looks like, but not a box? Just an alternative. <laughs> Just I'm trying to I was really trying to like baseline but on this box yemen stretches across about half of the bottom and a bit of the side that's leaning towards the floor Um, in actual earth terms um, yemen occupies the southern tip of the arabian plate like the tectonic plate um, with saudi arabia bordering it to the north and oman to its east Um, so it's nestled into the horn of africa and so the Red Sea is separating it from Eritrea to the west and the Gulf of Aden between it and Djibouti and Somalia to the south. You got it? Yeah. So it's right up next to the, the East African coast. Yeah. It's it's right up in there and it, it, fits, it fits in. There's like a little well, divot and it fits in yeah. the divot. And there's the, the, uh, the strait there is the Bab el-Mandab. Yeah. Okay. That's that's that one. So you get through there to go up the Red Sea, and then you can go through the Su- Suez Canal in the Sinai. Suez. There we go. Okay. <laughs> I was like, it wasn't the Sinai crisis; it was the Suez crisis. Um, oh boy. Just, uh, just thinking about my military history because I think about that a lot. Uh, so Yemen has low lying coasts that experience fog instead of really precipitation. So it's called a coastal <laughs> fog desert ecoregion um which like i like every one of those words yeah (laughs) um but not so far inland it doesn't take long inland before things really start going off topography wise um so 
if it weren't for variations in elevation, um, inland Yemen would be extremely hot, extremely dry, and extremely extreme. Mm. Um, so parts of Yemen are included in the empty quarter. Do you remember the fun fact about the empty quarter, Anna? I do. I do. And what's the fun fact about the empty quarter? It's not empty. Well, what's the other fun fact about the empty quarter? Oh, the name for it. The, yeah. the name for it is was given to it by the British, but then just made an Arabic they, name. To make, to like legitimize it. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the empty quarter. No, no, it's from here. Yeah. So that would be the Ruba Akali. Um, mm-hmm. But between the empty quarter and the coasts are the highlands. So most of the country is in uh, is highland-ish. Um, okay. So lower elevations in these areas are hot and dry. But as one increases in elevation, precipitation increases to the point where agriculture can be sustained and seasonal rivers flow through wadis um, or valleys. So that's um, mm-hmm. it rains, flows down, rivers. So there are no permanent rivers in Yemen. Um, Interesting. Yeah. I thought. Oh, that explains that one movie about salmon fishing. Yeah. Salmon fishing in the Yemen. Yes. Uh, It was. So I, um, (laughs) I watched that film from about 10 meters back on a flight and it was like (laughs) subtitled in Dutch. Oh, that's a confusing experience. Pretty sure it's boring. (laughs) But it was. So the Central Highlands are the cent- so the Central Highlands. There's sort of the the Western Highlands and the Central Highlands. The Central Highlands okay. are a little bit drier because of rain shadow, um, the rain shadow effect. So they're drier because the Western Highlands are super wet. Mm, okay, so that's because how, of the elevation. Right, they get stuck. That's and they how do the all rain shadow rain. works. Right. Yeah, I think so. They get stuck. Cloud stuck. We've all been cloud stuck. The Western Highlands are who we have to thank for coffee uh, because Yemen is was historically a chief producer of coffee. So anyone who has grown a coffee plant should be sufficiently impressed by the amount of precipitation levels in the Highlands, uh, given how much water those dramatic little guys need to not die. Oh, looking at you, buddy. <laughs> Hang in there. Um, but yeah, they I will perish. They're very thirsty little guys. So also... In the Western Highlands of Yemen, we find a lost kingdom. Stop that. <laughs> this is an educational Sorry. podcast. Sorry. So so like with most lost kingdoms, um, its presence was already known. Uh, Himyar maintained prominence across multiple regions, not just this one, uh, from the late 2nd century BCE to the 6th century CE. So um, it flourished pretty well. So there were periods where... Um, it was a kingdom and then it got a bit expansionist and then it was like a, something of an empire. Um, and then um, stuff started changing and we'll talk about some of that stuff throughout the sure episode. Will. Um, the earliest external historical reference to Himyar is reference to its capital Zafar. It's not the, the villain from Aladdin. God. That You saw me make the effort I not did. to say it but and you like, said it. I know, because like <laughs> I'm disappointed in you. Like <laughs> this was in Pliny the Elder's Natural History. So Natural History was written in 77 CE, and the second edition was interfered with by Mount Vesuvius. Yeah, kept, I was going to say Pliny the Elder's Pliny untimely the Elder. death. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so locally, Zephyr. So. <laughs> 
Yeah, the, the consonant um, root. Uh, is a place name well attested in Sabaean inscriptions. So Sabaean or Sabaic uh, was the native language of Saba and later Himyar. So Saba, does that sound familiar? Sure does. What does it sound like? The birthplace of Queen of Sheba? I mean, Sabi- I guess like Sheba. spiritually, it's the birthplace yeah. of the Queen of Sheba. But Saba, Sheba, same, same. See our episode on the Queen of Sheba yeah, to so- learn more. Yeah, so Saba predates and then is superseded by um, and, and succeeded by Himyar. Um, are they are they in the same place? Ish, they sort of. They're okay, in Yemen. So it's not. They're okay. they're in what's today Yemen. What's in what's okay. today um, sort of the highlands up up kind of a bit into what is is now the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Um, okay. But they're they're all in southern Arabia. So Sabaic was an old South Arabian language. That's sort of the, the little, little family group. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's an extinct group of Semitic languages that were written in epigraphic South Arabian um, or Musnad. Uh, so Musnad is an Abjad script. Um, you know Abjad? I'm familiar with the concept, yeah. but I didn't know it was called that. Yeah. So, so you've got an alphabet and that has <laughs> vowels and letters. Like mm-hmm. vowels and consonants, because there's an aleph and a bet in it. That's you got both. Um, and then an abjad is um, those are writing systems that only have consonants represented and vowels are inferred, like Arabic or Hebrew or the name of tech startup. Um, so uh, Musnad evolved into the Gez script, which is still used to used for Amharic to Grinya and Tigrayat today. Um, and so you, you'll see, the, you you may see Anna, you, or you may have already seen in the stuff that I sent you to read. Uh, but <laughs> if you look at, um, if you happen to ever see um, inscriptions or, um, or sort of art, inscribed art from um, ancient South Arabia, it looks a lot like... Um, Amharic. In Arabia, epigraphic South Arabian was phased out in favor of the Arabic script in the 6th century CE. So prior to the establishment of Islam. Oh, that's um, interesting. Yeah. So it just became a lingua franca. Um, also, I, I would be interested to see if it had something to do with what people were writing on, what it was easier because... Mm. Um, if, scripty lines versus if you're doing yeah if you're doing like stone inscriptions straight lines are easier versus writing mm-hmm. a lot of stuff that we we have uh for south arabian inscriptions um it'll be like like patronyms or so it'll be like people's names um like on an artwork or something like dedications of things mm. and um and so that's we we have Plenty the Elder talking about it, <laughs> like talking about this place. So this is in um, the early Roman Empire, um, early-ish. <laughs> like it's it's happening. The Roman Empire is fully happening in 77 CE. Um, but so we've, we've got that Roman source. And then we've got another um, really fascinating contemporary source is a sort of 
verbal atlas anonymously written in the middle of the first century CE. So around the same time. Um, and it's mm-hmm. the Periplus of the Erythraean Sea. So Periplus is a, so this is in Greek. A Periplus is a, is a specific type of document. Um, and it's like a Periplus means like a sailing around and Erythraea is the Greek word for red. So uh, the Red Sea in this case isn't just the one that we know, uh, but it includes the one that we know as well as the Gulf <laughs> of Aden, the Oman Sea, uh, the the Gulf, like the, the main one, um, yep. and the, one. the Indian Ocean. So pretty much all the coastline between Egypt and India. So mm, this wow, isn't wow. the only Periplus that exists because a Periplus was a descriptive guide that narrated a sailing route. Um, and so you think about this is a time before maps. And also if you think like, uh, if you are, if you're just like sailing guy and you're trying to get from point, of, like looking at a map isn't actually going to help you because you want to know what's in front like of what, you because you're yeah, not what the reference points cause, are because yeah, you're not using any kind of like geographic information system yeah, so if you if you imagine that thing where someone rolls up to you in a car with their window down and asks you for directions and then you get like a long string of like well you're gonna go here and you see this and you do this and this it's more like that yeah that's and that, so that's what it is so it's a it's an atlas but it's a descriptive atlas and it was likely written by a greek speaker um, so somebody who spoke Greek. Yeah. So like Koine was just like common, common mm-hmm. Greek is what the Bible was written in. Um, parts of it, parts of the Bible, parts of it, parts of the, yeah. the sorry, of it. sorry, the new Testament. Sorry. Um, it's my, my Baptist upbringing coming through being like, you know, um, but that, so when you le- like, if, if you were to learn Greek as part of a theology course or part of like your religious learning, you would learn Koine Greek. So this Greek speaker was from Egypt um, and was a subject of the Roman empire. So it's like a very cool, um, interesting cosmopolitan sort of looking at, they were a literate sailor. Um, So this was like, they were writing up, they were writing about their job. They weren't like Mm -hmm. doing tourism. Um, This wasn't like an Ibn Battuta situation. This was a like, like a functional description. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's, um, so it's been suggested that the author was from Berenike. Um, It was on the Red Sea coast, but rather than just talk about it, um, I'm going to have Anna read what the Periplus has to say about visiting Himyar this time of year, like now, this time of year. And then we'll circle back and I will um, quiz you. Now to the left of Berenike, sailing for two or three days from Mussel Harbor eastward across the adjacent gulf, there is another harbor and fortified place, which is called White Village, from which there is a road to Petra, which is subject to Malikas, king of the Nabataeans. It holds the position of a market town for the small vessels sent there from Arabia. And so a centurion is stationed there as a collector of one-fourth of... That's a high tax, my goodness. A collector of one-fourth of the merchandise imported with an armed force as a garrison. Directly below this place is the adjoining country of Arabia, in its length bordering a great distance on the Erythraean Sea. Different tribes inhabit the country, differing in their speech, some partially and some altogether. The land next to the sea is similarly dotted here and there with caves of the fish eaters. Talked about those guys. No, different ones. Oh, different fish eaters. Yeah, the okay. ichthyophagoi in, um, in Herodotus are not same, same ichthyophagoi uh, okay. in Arabia. Well, 
good to know. Different time, the, Anna. People change. Hmm. But the country inland is peopled by rascally men speaking two languages who live in villages and nomadic camps by whom those sailing off the middle course are plundered and those surviving shipwrecks are taken for slaves. And so they too are continually taken prisoners by the chiefs and kings of Arabia and they are called Carneites. Navigation is dangerous along this whole coast of Arabia, which is without harbors, with bad anchorages, foul, inaccessible because of breakers and rocks and terrible in every way. So he's not a fan. Therefore, we hold our course down the middle of the Gulf and pass on as fast as possible by the country of Arabia until we come to the Burnt Island, directly below which there are regions of peaceful people, nomadic pasturers of cattle, sheep, and camels. One star. Beyond these places, in a bay at the foot of the left side of this Gulf, there is a place by the shore called Musa a market town established by law distant altogether from Berenike for those sailing southward about 12,000 stadia. And the whole place is crowded with Arab ship owners and seafaring men and is busy with the affairs of commerce for they carry on a trade with the far side coast and with Barigaza, sending their own ships there. Three days inland from this port, there is a city called Sawa in the midst of the region called Maferitis, and there is a vassal chief named Coleibus who lives in that city. And after nine days more, there is Safar, the metropolis, in which lives Carabael, lawful king of two tribes, the Homerites and those living next to them, called the Sabaites. Through continual embassies and gifts, he is a friend of the emperor's. The market town of Musa is without a harbor, but has a good roadstead and anchorage because of the sandy bottom thereabouts, where the anchors hold safely. The merchandise imported there consists of purple cloths, both fine and coarse, clothing in the Arabian style, with sleeves, plain, ordinary, embroidered, or interwoven with gold, wow. saffron, sweet rush, muslins, cloaks, blankets, not many, some plain, and others made in the local fashion, Sashes of different colors, fragrant ointments in moderate quantity, wine and wheat, not much. For the country produces grain in moderate amount and a great deal of wine. And to the king and the chief are given horses and sumpter mules. What's a sumpter mule? Vessels of gold and polished silver, finely woven clothing and copper vessels. There are exported from the same place the things produced in the country, selected myrrh, and the Gebanite Menaean Stakti, alabaster, and all things already mentioned from Avalites and the far side coast. The voyage to this place is made best about the month of September, that is, Thoth, but there is nothing to prevent it even earlier. So the, the so navigation gets tough. No, it's just, well, it, it has to do with, I mean, maybe traffic's better than um, you're thinking Does it have about to do with the winds. It could mm. have to do, uh, it, surely it has to do with the winds. Um, but, but also, uh, yeah, so there's no reason we could go now. Okay. Um, so do you see what's, what you, you, like, what are some things that you heard in, in that, in that brief description? So this is, I mean, the periplus is, is quite long, but this is the section yeah. that is relevant to this corner of, of the trip. Um, so what yeah. were some things that you heard that, um, you, you would think make it kind of periplusy? Well, if you're involved in shipping, Knowing who's in power where would be helpful. So knowing to whom you need to pay taxes or like and how a much quarter it is. of your stuff. Yeah. Um, 
and also knowing the major major cities, places where there are markets or places where your stuff might be unloaded. Yeah. Uh, knowing places where <laughs> there's good harbor and anchorage or not. And yeah, there's like some like cool racism, like some like cool like like bias of just being like everyone there sucks they're all criminals like it's just just like really avoid that part yeah i feel like they're all horrible um so there (laughs) there's sort of there's some value judgments in there and your stuff's gonna get stolen and also there's no place to park yeah yeah so just sort of like (laughs) park your ship places where you want to just kind of keep on scooting or places where you can stop places where and also the types of merchandise that that is traded there so like yeah What's what's popular? What's yeah. good? Not um, many blankets and not much wheat, but everything else seems yeah great. Yeah, and, and so some of the so this this section was about Himyar, so like leaving the place just before Himyar. So like Himyar is not where just like the like awful like human trash cans that want to steal every stuff live like just like really like really problematic depictions um, yeah i guess so anonymous author the periplus of the erythrean sea canceled um but okay uh so some place names and um and then person name that that we will encounter here so the the homerites um that's Hemyar. Yeah, like, well, that makes that yeah. makes sense. And then the Sabaites, uh, that's Saba. So the Sabaeans. Yep. So the Himyarites and the Sabaeans. Um, and so uh, Himyar, if I if the map is in my head right, uh, Himyar is sort of south. The heart of Himyar is sort of southwest of Saba. Okay. So so Himyar was sort of based in those western highlands, because um, it's a it was where a good place to be comes from. Well, where the coffee comes from, but also where the rain is um, mm-hmm. and um, where it's easy to protect. Uh, so the speaking the, of coffee, the place names. Yeah. So the place. So we, we heard Musa or I guess it would be Mudza mm-hmm. because it was German, Greek. It was Greek. Uh, so Mudza. <laughs> so that's Mocha. So mm-hmm. Mocha is a is a port. Well, it's not a port. That's the one that isn't. It's like an inland port. Okay. That's that's the one where it's like eh, it's not it's not great for like mooring, but it's there. But it's um, got yeah. But it's like a, a it's a it's an entrepot of some kind. Um, sure. So that's the city of you Mocha. Could park there, but you'd have to walk forever. And and then Sawa is um, the modern city of Thais. Uh, Thais. And so Thais you might have heard of uh, because it is relevant to the ongoing um war in Yemen. Um so those are the two so Thai is, is an is an inland is a is a highland city. Um okay. and then we heard about Karabel. Um and so Karabel is probably it's not Karabel. <laughs> uh, so, so it was so it's the the equivalent of K R B Val L. Um, so not to be f- confused with Carabelle pots from oh God, our sightseeing no. episode. No, <laughs> no. Um, now I'm still I I'm still upset about that. Like, yeah, well, it just that guy sucks. It's thought that Carab Carabelle in um, yep. 
in the Paraplus is Kayabil Watar Yuhanim. Um, and so he ruled Himyar somewhere between 40 and 70 CE. So hmm. it, it what that like that works really well with the dating, with the presumed dating of the Paraplus. Yeah, that's handy. Um, but also there were several Karabils in the first century because it was a regnal name that you rule under. So I included a couple things to kind of show you some contrast. But you've got places where they're that places more or less directly under control, like if if nothing else, economic control of or economic duress, maybe from the the Roman Empire. And then there's a Oh um, right. Okay. Yeah, through continual embassies and gifts, he is a friend of the emperors. I didn't clock and the also, emperors. He, also, he is the lawful king of two tribes, the Homerites and the Sabaites. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, for, so, so, you know how in Assyria, kings are kings of Babylon, like Babylon and Ashur, like kings of the four corners, kings of the they universe. Have, yeah, the whole You've got like a whole of, title. Um, yeah. And how in Egypt, you have the pharaoh who like rules like upper and lower Egypt. Later and like two the, lands, but, 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 yeah. So um, the, there's a similar sort of set of of titles that the kings of Himyar have. And so you'd be like the the king of like Himyar and, and Duraidan. Um you'd also be like the king of Saba, like places especially when they're like okay. out conquering. And so <laughs> it's whether it's like having conquered it or a nod to them or something, like again, I'm not it has been fifteen years since I've like <laughs> read a lot about this okay. and so also we know more stuff now so yeah <laughs> but the other thing to note is the whole lawful king so he is recognized He's- um so you've got um Calibus in um in Sawa so they're in Thais um and he's a vassal chief so he's not so he's, he's a puppet. Not recognized as like a, he's as he's a, a pu- so he's he's not um like he he's a vassal. So he's like a puppet king. So he operates okay. on behalf of possibly Carabao. So this is in the first century CE. Um, something okay. that uh, the other thing that Himyar is like sort of I guess famous for um, as far as they get famous for anything is that. Um, while being part of sort of those sort of the homeland of the Arabs and sort of yes, like you have there were Arabs yep. and um and so you have the sort of we think often of like pre-islamic religion mm-hmm. but there were multiple religions <laughs> um, uh pre-islam uh and so one of them being Judaism. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we'll get to Judaism, but first, context. So I'm going to run through a very brief summary of the progression of religion, or rather shifts in proportions of the population practicing various religions. Um, so in the, uh, of, of Himyar. So in the pre-Islamic period, which is everything before the Aksumite conquest, we'll get there. We have a mix of polytheism, Judaism, Christianity, and other, which is what I saw um, noted as Iranian religion, 
but mostly uh, Arab polytheism was the early dominant belief system. So people worshipped lots and lots of deities, and there were also other supernatural beings such as jinn that were sort of a part of everyday life and belief. So I don't worship isn't really the right word for jinn, but they were recognized and part of the cosmology. And some of the jinn converted to Islam. Mm-hmm. The jinn, jinn were like, well, maybe we should go check this guy out. They were, yeah. Um, but yeah yeah, so they sort of were like heard about like they heard about a law and they're like Mm. i'm picking up what this guy's putting down (laughs) Um, so your gods and your goddesses were worshipped at local shrines such as the kaaba in mecca so Allah may have been one of the gods to whom shrines were dedicated so there may have been sort of like a not a predecessor but recognition of that deity, but but that was a minor part of the whole polytheistic religion. Many of the physical descriptions of the pre-Islamic gods are based on idols that have been found or are described in texts, especially near the Kaaba, which is believed to have contained up to 360 of them. That's a lot. It's just a lot to remember. At some point in the late 4th century CE, Judaism became the dominant religion. The Arabian Peninsula... I'm just going to say, became the dominant religion for people in power. Yes. Judaism rose to prominence. I've got a quote now from a course page from SUNY, which is the State University of New York. Quote, Arabian Jews spoke Arabic as well as Hebrew and Aramaic and had contact with Jewish religious centers in Babylonia and Palestine. The Yemeni Himyarites converted to Judaism in the 4th century, and some of the Kinda, a tribe in Central Arabia, Arabia who were the Himyarites' vassals, were also converted in the 4th to 5th centuries. There is evidence that Jewish converts in the Hejaz were regarded as Jews by other Jews and non-Jews alike, and sought advice from Babylonian rabbis on matter of attire and kosher food. In at least one case, it is known that an Arab tribe agreed to adopt Judaism as a condition for settling in a town dominated by Jewish inhabitants. Some Arab women in Yathrib slash Medina are said to have vowed to make their child a Jew if the child survived, since they considered the Jews to be people, quote, of knowledge and the book, and interior, quote. Historian Philip Hiti infers from proper names and agricultural vocabulary that the Jewish tribes of Yathrib consisted mostly of Judaized clans of Arabian and Aramean origin. Okay, so so end quote there. Um, and so there was, like I said, right at the top of the episode, there was a Jewish monarchy and that lasted for quite a while. And then after Constantine conquered Byzantium in 324 CE, Christianity spread to Arabia, but Christians were a minority-ish in Himyar. In the south, a center of Christianity developed as a result of the influence of the Christian kingdom of Aksum, based on the other side of the Red Sea in Ethiopia, slash Eritrea. The Jewish monarchy in Himyar ended with the reign of Yusuf, known as Dunawas, who in 523 CE persecuted the Himyarite Christian population of Najran. And by persecuted, we'll get to this, but just really slaughtered thousands of people. This provoked a coup d'etat by Aksumite forces who came to the defense of their fellow Christians. The Jewish monarchy ended, but wasn't replaced by Christianity. Instead, Islam rose as the primary religion. Uh, 
So that was a real whirlwind. Yeah. And I'm going to just, I'm just going to pause because like, yeah. just to clarify. Um, mm-hmm. So Islam didn't happen until the seventh century CE. Um, so yeah, there was a, there was a period of. Yes. So, and to, to, so also to clarify, because this is something that um, is very easy to just sort of paint with a very broad brush. Um, there is, and this is something that we will discuss um, a little bit more in one of the things that's uh, that that we'll we'll find. But um, so the um, like Arabian polytheism, like people continued to observe that and mm-hmm. people continue to practice that the, what um, makes this a what sort of makes Judaism rise to prominence is um, like the king converted to Judaism um, and other people converted to Judaism too and so it was a, a couple hundred years of, of rule under a presumably um like jewish monarchy uh but those other things also existed and mm-hmm. and so it's something that the the jewish community so um jews remained um up until um they um they they went they were relocated to israel uh and so yemenite jews uh, are a known quantity in terms of mm-hmm. like the the general like Mizrahim, so like the um, like Arab Jews. Even as power shifted and the people with power shifted and had different um, different sort of, I, I don't I don't know that we could say that there's anything like a state religion or anything like that. Um, no, it's just, just a like place sort where of the balance of power shifted well, between. just uh, just like the the like monumental art that we have and like mm-hmm. the things that we have that are the um material record of 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 experience reflects those in pa- like those with considerable means and mm. so I, I don't want anyone okay. to sort of come away from this thinking that like they woke up and they're like I guess we're doing the judaism thing and then they're like nope He's Never mind. Ri- he's risen. We're Christian now. And then like, nope, it's now it's that's, <laughs> so it's um, and then also because I, I, I had mentioned that the whole the whole thing with um, the Arabic script um, sort of took over before the arrival of Islam. So it's sort of like there are cultural shifts happening and there are sort of population shifts happening and and sort of shifts of uh, like knowledge and practice. And so it's a happening time um, yeah the downside of a, a whirlwind timeline is uh talking in chunks doesn't really uh, you did a great job bud um but we're gonna take a real short break um hmm. and then we'll come back and i'm gonna tell you about some archaeology yay <laughs> it's chris webster again if you haven't checked out our new parent website culturalmedia.com then please do Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Culturomedia.com. 
Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for motion. With motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com motion. And we are back. Um, most of what we've discussed today uh, so far has has come to us from non-Hemurite sources, uh, which is a mixed bag in terms of reliability. So we owe it to ourselves and the residents of an Arabian antiquity to look at the archaeology of the region. <laughs> and doing so brings us to Zafar, the capital city mentioned by Pliny the Elder. It's close to the modern city of Ib. Um, which holds the record of highest annual precipitation in Yemen. I went um, and looked up what the highest annual precipitation in Yemen was, just to like give myself a sense. Yeah. Uh, not much. But still pretty rainy. Rainy enough. Yeah. It's like, yes. So in what could have been the hottest, driest, extremist place on earth, mountains. It's kind of rainy. Yeah. Um, so it's a great location. It's easy to defend, <laughs> tucked away in the highlands. So you can kind of see who's coming. Um, and so um, the the site of Zafar has been excavated. Well, it's not being excavated anymore. Um, but it was excavated for like at least 10 years um, mm-hmm. by a team led by Paul Yule um, at the University of Heidelberg. And I'm going to have in the show notes some links to um, mostly the preliminary reports of the excavation. So this is where they sort of talk about the season. They describe uh, what they excavated. If there's Here's like what we did, well, like any site plans, and then they discuss any cool stuff and some sort of like preliminary thoughts. Um, so the University of Heidelberg has like a really great. Um, approach or maybe it's just this guy has a great approach of making hmm. um publications available so there's a ton of uh, stuff that you can just read oh um, well, i love that yeah so um rather than going through and being like and then there's this type of ceramic and there's this type of small fine um i want you to just look at that i just want you to go look at it because it's really cool go, and there's a lot of that um there's a lot of gorgeous stuff there's a lot of interesting stuff but then in 2008 they found a large stone building and they excavated it and they were uh, what they called that they named building. it the stone building. Wow. Uh, but, but also like it was kind of a big deal because they really hadn't found much in the way of buildings. No, that's good. I just, uh, yeah. So it, it's, it is, I mean, it is like a little, a it is a little bit 
it's a bit of a first draft name, but mm-hmm. um, on the exterior of this building, <laughs> the unobtainium of, <laughs> of place names. On the exterior of this building, they found a guy. Yeah, look at that. That's look at a this guy. guy. So tell me about look this guy. guy. Describe this guy to me, Anna. Yeah, let me zoom a little more. So he is wearing a crown. Yeah. Like He's what kind of crown is that? Tall. It's a, um, it's a crown. The excavators a, a use the word crown? gaudy. <laughs> oh, well, that's a judgment call. Um, yeah, it's a very tall crown and it seems to, there are, it seems to have like spires and maybe gems inset into yeah. it. Oh, goodness. It's got a lot um, going on. Yeah. He's got a real look. He has a little round head and yeah. he's got curly hair, curly hair and yeah. curly hair that just, just joins right up into the beard. It's just, he's yeah. got a, a hair circle around his head and he's got a mustache and he is holding in his right hand, he's holding a staff in his left hand. Okay. Well, it looks like he's holding a little planter full of trees, but that can't be right. Is it maybe like a, a fan? I can't tell if it is. I can't tell if it's a knife. I can't oh, tell it if it's a torch. Yeah. Could, I okay. can't tell. Well, he's holding something that is like given a feathered texture, which could yeah. be. Any number of things. He's wearing, he's wearing a patterned undergarment and then a pleated robe over it. Yeah, Yeah. he's yeah. Yeah, He's he's wearing like a shirt and then a. What does that look like? What is that? What is that? What does his overgarment look a little bit like? A toga. It looks like a toga. It does look like a toga. And what's he got Uh, tucked into that toga? What's he packing in that toga? He's he's packing a sword. Yeah. So um, and then what's bare feet? So do you see what's next to it? Um, that's On there. the right? Yeah. Two bulls. Yeah. So that's, grapes. those are uh, called uh, Boscranian uh, motifs or it's like bull heads. Um, and so that it's, continues. That what they are. Like that continues along. Um, so you have like in um, in these like like Himyarite stuff, like Sabian stuff, like in ancient South Arabian stuff, you have these architectural elements that'll be like a repeating pattern of mm-hmm. like ibex heads or bull heads. You've got so you've you've got grapes and grape leaves, like really really gorgeous pattern stuff. But yeah, you got this guy. Um, so who's that guy? So that, that guy. guy Tell me about the guy. Um, so we find out a few things about this guy, mm-hmm. um, and so I'm gonna quote from. Um, the preliminary report from that season. I also want um, to note, he seems pretty chill. Like he, he seems, seems content. Like a, He's got sort of a content expression. We got just like a, like good looking guy here in his little toga, um, big toga. Cause I think it's over life size. Um, <laughs> so quote for the dating of the crowned figure. Most important evidence is the inscription cut into the stone block. Uh, Walter W. Muller reads the broken late Sabaic inscription originally as Wadab. <laughs> so, which means um, Wad, uh, who is a god, the deity mm-hmm. Wad is father. And so the question becomes whether this was like this, um, this king was employing an outdated or maybe decontextualized phrase that hung around in the vernacular after conversion to monotheism in 375-ish CE. So around 375 is when the first um, Jewish king ruled Hemyar. And so from then on, it was, it was 
it was monotheistic, whether it was uh, Judaism or Christianity. Like they, either way, one guy, <laughs> big G. Um, so was it something like how we, like how we do stuff like when somebody sneezes Bless or you. you like that, that kind of stuff that it's, it's outdated because we don't believe that like your heart stops or like that, it, like your soul the, leaves your body. Yeah. They're like Satan's going to get in there or something, but we still do it. Like, is it something <laughs> like that? Um, or was he an apostate king who wanted to reinstate the indigenous South Arabian religion? Is that mm-hmm. what he was doing? Or maybe it was kind of both like conversion is happening, but it takes a while. Um, so continue the quote, the inscription shows that the individual depicted adhered to the old religion. Uh, one may conjecture that, uh, one may conjecture just before the new monotheistic religions, Judaism and Christianity, uh, take hold in the upper classes. The figure, um, saying circa 370 to 400 CE belongs to the latest datable remains in the stone building. With the conversion of the aristocracy to monotheism, still it must have taken several years for such religions to have forced all of the competing traditional cults out of the capital, Hmm. as was the case in Rome in 390, end quote. Hmm. So Christianity happened for the first time to the Roman Empire in 313. So Mm -hmm. Constantine the first was the first yeah he was the first christian roman emperor um and he's the one who um who founded constantinopolis which became which is known as constantinople which is now istanbul istanbul um so in 313 that was the edict of milan and the edict of Milan was was issued to say that we are cool with Christians now. Um, it's legal. Christianity was legalized, and there you don't was have to have a medical card anymore. Exactly. Yes. Um, and and so from three thirteen to three ninety, conversion was happening in the aristocracy and in other arenas of of sort of authority. And it wasn't until 390 that they said, like, nobody else. Everybody else out. Yeah. Okay. Um, so was something similar happening here where, like, sure, it's it's the religion, but it's not the state religion. It's not. You don't have to. Yeah. Do it. So all of that information comes from the preliminary excavation report from the 2008 season. But in 2013, this figure was the subject of an article in antiquity that more exhaustively discussed its context and traits. And so they came to um, a different, like a sort of different conclusion after uh, several more years of Mm. sort of Mm -hmm. study and contextualizing. Um, And so I'm going to just quote, um, uh, part of that uh, uh, abstract so that folks can, can look it up. Uh, but I think it's it's cool to, to look at how interpretation can change at, from like, we just found this guy to yeah. we've thought about this. Yeah. Um, and they say <laughs> about things is yeah. good. Yeah. And so they they write, 
quote, the proposal is that it represents an Aksumite puppet ruler of the 6th century at a key moment in the history of the Hemurite kingdom. The crowned king of Zafar is significant not only in itself, but also in helping to delineate the cultural and political stage onto which Islam was shortly to emerge, end quote. So this also, they, they, they think, comes from the sixth century. So like they're in the 500s yeah. where you've got earlier you've, than. So, yeah. So you've got, um, this is when the, when, when you gave us the whirlwind, like that mm-hmm. was when, um, when Himyar falls off and the Aksumite yeah. conquest has happened. So like, did they, did they pick a guy who, um, did they install a guy who subscribed to the old South Arabian religious like polytheism? And he's like, okay. And, and doing it like, sure. is that, or like, and so it, it's something that something is else was going on. Yeah. So it's just this like very, um, very cool place. Uh, so we're going to take another ad and then Anna's going to read us. She's going to tell me some science <laughs> and then we'll get on out of here. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com slash shop. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop, and click on the link. We're back. Here comes the science. We're still in Zafar, and so far we have one main source of information for dating, and that's great that we have anything at all. That guy? That guy. But wouldn't it be better if we had two sources? Yes, it would. Let's talk about coins. Don't worry, this hasn't been an elaborate setup to trick you into a numismatics episode. 110 minutes to be like, guess what? Coins. (laughs) Like, lock the doors. (laughs) So... This is a chemical analysis of coins, specifically a set of coins from the Himyarite kingdom chosen because they represent stylistically a progression of the coinage issued by people in power and some forgeries. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. oh, in the yeah, in, in the main figure that shows the coins in the paper, it's just like something, something forgery. Well, as it as it yeah, it's like oh, embarrassing. Okay, so this is a chemical analysis of those coins, and our information comes from an article published in 2011 in the journal Archaeometry. The title is quote Non-destructive chemical analysis of old South Arabian coins, fourth century BCE to third century CE. Great, that's good because, <laughs> as a line in the abstract points out. Understandably, numismatists responsible for preserving their collections discourage destructive analysis. That's fair. <laughs> don't, don't, don't hurt our coins. Yeah. Yeah, which, you know, that's reasonable. So the study looked at coins from various points along the time timeline of the Hemirite era of power, um, which included old and new style Athenian imitations. So much like that guy was wearing a toga. There were sort of homages to Athenian style currency in Himyar. So they set up their investigation like this. I'm quoting from the article now. Quote, 
does the silver content of the different issues remain, so different sets of coins, remain constant over the years? Or does it change with time as significant amounts of less precious metals were added? How does the silver content correspond with the stylistic or typological changes in numismatic history? How reliable are optical material identifications? That last one is going to matter. <laughs> oh. Not that the other ones don't, but that, that one <laughs> is sort of the, the crux of the whole thing. Oh. So uh, a second quote each such group of old South Arabian coins is roughly dated. However, their absolute chronology is debatable. So you can't stick a year on there necessarily, but you can give a range. Most, perhaps not all, throw in a little shade, would agree to use this group dating strategy instead of attempting gradual technical or stylistic development schemes, such as the so-called art historical method, because of the lack of chronological anchoring points, end quote. So like... You could try to say this is different from this and, and this guy has a different nose than this guy yeah. or the text is different. But they're saying that you have no chronological context to link those things to. So what's the point of even trying to make a timeline? Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed, art historians. <laughs> the researchers. <laughs> <laughs> These authors to art history drop dead. <laughs> the researchers analyzed the metal compositions of the coins, including byproducts of corrosion. So like they incorporate So just in case there was some material included in the mix of the coins that had like corroded out, they still looked at the byproducts to see if they were missing anything. Mm -hmm. So this, this also allowed them to determine which coins were cast, uh, which is when molten metal is poured into molds versus which were struck, which is a design smashed into hot metal, but not molten. The chemical analysis proved more accurate than visual analysis. Why? Which is interesting. <laughs> you think there should be a visual difference between the two methods of creating coins. Because like when you use a die to smash a design into coins, it creates that kind of like pancaked edge around where the, the die, where the design is. Um, and, and when you cast a coin in a mold, it doesn't do that. What if but you it have a like pancakey looking mold? Well, exactly. So Wait, that's how did not... you make the mold? Wouldn't you have like cast? No, you could have um, incised it, chiseled it. Just but... think about working harder, not smarter. Well, nope. Nope. That's not what you were. <laughs> the other one. That's what I. Nobody's nerfed. Nobody is nerfed. But in any case, it turns out just looking at the coins is not a good way of doing it. <laughs> Uh, and unfortunately, <laughs> as of 2011, based on what I read in that article, <laughs> nearly all studies of they ancient coins, not just looking at it, they did not invented, but they were just like, Hey, how about, how about this? What? So Chemistry. was the, was the issue that other, the issue was, other methods of analysis were destructive and nobody yes, wanted and to so destroy they, these like precious, precious exactly. coins. And so they just looked at precious. them harder. Yeah. <laughs> Give me a bigger microscope. Uh, so this method that they used, which I, I won't go into the science of, because frankly, I don't understand it, but it, it basically allowed them to analyze the chemical, the, the metallurgical components of the coins without taking a sample, without just like taking a chunk out of the coin. So 
These researchers were then able to create a reasonably reliable timeline of changes in coin production via the actual makeup of the metal, basically who was putting more silver in versus less silver to to make sort of less expensive coins, Mm -hmm. which suggests changes in leadership. Rulers do love to smash a picture of their face or a symbol of their rule onto a coin. So again, there isn't a specific chronological anchor, but they are able to more reliably sort of rank the coins in terms of silver content, basically. And I think that's what was going on in that paper. Okay. Um, I tried really hard. But basically the, the, the big point of that paper was, hey, we figured out a way to not just look at it with our eyeballs and try to come to conclusions about when these different coins were minted. Cool. Yeah. So moving on from coinage, we know historically that the Himyarite kingdom sort of petered out around the 6th century CE and was conquered by the Aksumite Empire in 525 CE. So yeah, the same. So that place what caused the petering. Yes. yes <laughs> of the 6th exactly. century was, was then, yeah. Yeah, the Aksumites petered them. Um, <laughs> and then there were a couple of centuries in there where things were in flux and then Islam took over from what had been a predominantly Jewish kingdom, or at least power was held yeah, by Jewish, the Jewish. Jewish to Christian to that guy. To, to that guy. Who's that guy? To then Islam. So that took yeah. like a hundred-ish years for yeah. that to happen. So what happened to bring about the major political and religious change that that was going on? In general, large polities don't just have a meeting and decide, well, we should probably redo our whole deal. Wouldn't it be nice if they did, though? Gosh. And just like our merch says, we heart context. So let's lay down some context for this conquest. It's a tongue twister. Say it five times That's fast. That's how I'm going to um, announce your, us setting your, dinner plans. On the plans. prowl? Oh, okay. Oh, prowl. <laughs> yeah. Let me just no. lay down some context for this conquest. Yeah. Wow. No, no. <laughs> that's not me. That's no one. It's not me either. Nobody, nobody, nobody thinks that's that. me. Stop it. Ew. I mean, I'm, I'm about to get, in fact, quite serious. I, I, um, I read. This, I can read. This, this last piece of the story is particularly impactful to me right now because I'm currently in Massachusetts visiting my folks and there is a severe drought here, like really bad, like their lawn is dust. Like genuinely, there was grass there the last time I visited. Now it's dust. And that hasn't stopped the neighbors with huge houses from watering their lawns. So that's cool. But I'm from New England and I remember summers in my childhood. And yes, there was the occasional brief drought during a dry summer. But things are getting worse. And there are certainly precedents for what happens when societies are faced with a worsening climate. And Himyar is one of them. And that is why... Anna is announcing a, con- a religious conversion. Oh. Uh, I'm that guy. <laughs> the reveal. It's me. So in order to figure out what, what? I read the joke. <laughs> yep. You have to laugh at it when I say it. So in order to figure out what might have been going on to cause such upheaval, (laughs) researchers used the rings of speleothems, which are non-binary stalactites and stalagmites. 
Spoolio they, thems. From a cave in northern Oman as a proxy for the amount of rain that fell over time in the region. They also dated the rings in the stalagmite by using uh, uranium and thorium isotopes, radiometric dating. We've talked about it before. Mm -hmm. So basically, the researchers were able to approximate how much it rained in each particular year by looking at the chemical composition of the rock's layers. Different ratios of minerals in those layers means that different rates of water was running through the cave system because it rained more or less. In the case of the stalagmite from Oman, which started to form around 2,600 years ago, the researchers found evidence of severe drought between the years 500 and 530 CE. At that time, precipitation levels dropped to less than half their modern average, creating what may have been the worst drought in southern Arabia over the last 10,000 years. So, I'm Which gonna... is... That's a long time. Bonkers. Yep. I just, this is just, I don't know what the uh, current Boston drought is re the last 10,000 years, but it's not good. I'm going to quote from Haaretz, but it's not Ruth. Ruth. No, it's Ariel. Southern, quote, sorry, quote, Southern Arabia gets a yearly 50 to 255 millimeters of rain from a combination of winter rains and summer monsoons. That's not much, but it was enough to sustain agriculture in ancient Himyar. In fact, in the same period, there were prosperous Byzantine farming towns in the Negev Desert, in today's southern Israel, which gets even less precipitation. The Himyarites managed their scarce water sources expertly with terraced fields and an elaborate irrigation system whose crown jewel was the famed Marib Dam. End quote. Do you know, End quote. Do you know what happened with the Marib Dam? When? Well, no. In general? Yeah, because there's like one thing you got to know about the Marib Dam. Tell me. It busted. Um, It's in the Quran. Um, And and so it's a a period where- Like it failed? It failed, yeah. Um, It was seen as like divine retribution. Uh, For the the people immediately below it, I guess. So it it is something that um, happened- so even with the technology, the, you know, the elaborate irrigation system, the Marib Dam, even with this technology, the drought was so severe and so prolonged that it provided a major tipping point in the stability of the Himyarite kingdom. It's not the only factor. The last Jewish ruler of Himyar took to extreme persecution of Christians in his kingdom. But like, you know, maybe the overall instability and public unrest was a result of drought and you know, economic people stress. Find, people find scapegoats. People they find, find people outlets. To, yeah, to, to blame people that they feel are suffering less. The kingdom was a tributary of the Aksumite Empire, so they had, they were an independent polity that owed tribute to Aksum. Um, during a drought and subsequent general scarcity of everything, tribute would have also been impacted. So Aksum would already have been like oh, these guys. That, plus the persecution of Christians, like on a scale of thousands killed, provided justification for Aksum to come in and fully take over because they were also a Christian empire. So they saw it as sort of rescuing their fellow Christians. And And thus... And that could have contributed to the persecution of just sort of seeing like a um, a dual loyalty, uh, perhaps. Mm. Sort of seeing... Uh, someone who is um, 
like who working like, with that dual who, who like observes Christianity like being in some way like harming them is a is a way to feel like you're harming this this entity that uh, under whose boot you are living. <laughs> it was basically a perfect storm of things and thus ended Jewish rule in the Himyarite kingdom replaced by Christianity and then by Islam. Yeah. So there we go. Um wait and so this is that is extremely new. Like this came out Yeah. This study came out like in the last few weeks. Yeah. Um, and I originally was going to, I, I had it on the docket for old news. And then I was like, no, actually, <laughs> like I'm not, I'm not just going to read about the the cave study. I want to talk about him. So, yeah. So just like a little, um, not a little, quite large, robust, long lasting. Um, but just these, these sort of, uh, these, these moments all over the world, all throughout time of like people doing like, big deal things and you just might not have heard about it yeah this is just like super fast whirlwind hemyar yeah uh, but just yeah learning about zafar learning about sort of this place that was like moving and shaking in the like roman imperial world um and there's a but- like there's a lot of other stuff happening in the world it turns out turns out um and i know some folks who uh work on who are archaeologists who work on um axomite sites hmm. and uh maybe we can chat maybe you should sometime. ask them about i would like to their work ask them you a question yeah <laughs> question. well we hope you enjoyed this and and learned as much as i did listeners because <laughs> i knew nothing and now i know a couple things But we're so glad that you are here with us listening and we will be back in your ears next week. And until then, you can find us at thedirtpod.com or on any of your preferred podcast platforms. And over at thedirtpod.com, you can find all of our back episodes. You can also find merch. You can find the link to donate money to pass the mic if you wish to do so. You can find the link to our Patreon if that's how you want to support us. And if you want to follow us on social media, you can do that. On Facebook, we are The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod. And uh, we love to hear from you. So let us know. Let us know what's up. What's up? What's up? And uh, thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening and for telling your friends and for sharing the dirt far and wide. We are... So proud of, you know, the community that we have and what we've been able to build and the fact that we can now start to give back. So thank you all so much. Yeah. And so we'll see you. We'll see you out there on the coasts of the Eritrean Sea because now's the time to get down there. Yeah, you got to go. But don't stop at that one spot. Don't don't stop there. No. Or or, or do. Maybe. I don't know. It felt. It felt. Really? It did feel feel very judgy. Uh, okay, not for bye. us to say. <laughs> bye. Okay, bye. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network.
Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.